Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. These people are vulnerable because they've been compelled by traffickers to engage in criminal activity. Disqualifying them from our ability to rescue them will put the UK in the position of no longer being able to identify them and will leave them to the mercy of the traffickers. Hello and welcome to Whitehall Sources. I'm Callum McDonald. We're recording on Thursday the 27th of April. Of course, it's been a busy week in politics, but you've come to the right place to get it all analysed, digested, and to get the inside track, really, on how things are working in and around Whitehall. Thank you for being there. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. Uh, there is a follow and a subscribe button just for you, depending on what app you're using. So make sure you press whichever one is relevant. Stick around. We're here every week to give you insider political analysis. And if if you've been here for a long time, well, well done. We salute your patience. You're hanging in there, and we're very, very grateful. Uh, lots to get through on today's podcast. We want to kind of look at setting a policy agenda, both in terms of if you're in government and if you're the opposition. How does that work? When should you give detail? What should the detail be? Uh, we'll look at that in advance of the King's speech, which of course is not too far away in the uh, in the future. We're also going to consider the aftermath of Dominic Rab, um, Hurricane Rab, as he ripped his way through the civil service, it would seem. Of course, we're, <laughs> we're overdoing that. But we'll talk about Dominic Rab, the relationship between politicians and political, politically appointed staff and the civil service as well. And we're going to kick off with a bit of Suella Braverman, uh, everybody's favourite. Uh, we'll get into that and the, uh, the illegal migration bill as well. So lots to come. Let me introduce you to our special guests today. Uh, first of all, we have Chris White. Hello, Chris. Hello. Hello. Great to have you here. Right. We always ask, give us your CV. Why are you here? What are your credentials? Uh, well, for my sins, I spent <laughs> 11 years working in Westminster, uh, of which six were a special advisor. So I did a year in opposition between 2009 and 2010. Uh, working for the opposition chief whip uh, and then we managed to uh, crowbar our way into government in the coalition um, and I did a couple of more years in the whip's office with Patrick um, and then spent the remainder of my time in the leader of the house office working for people like Andrew Lansley and William Hague so 
Uh, my experience very much is around uh, how to work with MPs and managing and planning the government's legislative program. Uh, and then I left Westminster in 2015 for a career in the private sector, now working for a communications consultancy called Secnewgate. Do you miss it? Do you miss miss your old life? You know, I, I get asked that question a lot. Uh, I miss sometimes not knowing exactly what's going on when you're in the room six mm. months out from uh, a King's speech or a Queen's speech. Uh, I don't miss the ridiculous hours and uh, <laughs> uh, going home to see my kids is, uh, yeah, it's much, much more of a healthy lifestyle. Yeah, fair. Great. Well, thank you for being here. Uh, we've also got Amy Richards with us. Hello, Amy. Hi. Hi, hi. Great to have you here. Right. Same question. Your CV. What have you been up to? So I was um, a political advisor to Yvette Cooper the last time she was Shadow Home Secretary. So um, between 2010 and 2015 um, and uh, obviously was involved in um, that election um, defeat for Labour. Um, I then um, helped run her leadership campaign, um, which we also lost. Some of you will remember that uh, Jeremy Corbyn um, uh, ran away with that one. Yeah, I've heard of him. Uh, yeah. And then I um, went to work for the cross-party campaign in the EU referendum, Britain Stronger, Britain Stronger in Europe, uh, which we also lost. So um, my political CV is sadly kind of littered with, um, with uh, defeat. So um, I hope that won't people up <laughs> no not at all absolutely not i mean that's it isn't it highs and lows i think that, that is one of the themes of this podcast always is um is how you can navigate around things and i suppose there is something in that amy you know in terms of in terms of being defeated that that actually is an important part of politics as well i don't know is it is it about sort of picking yourself up picking yourself up dusting yourself off and, and cracking on what what is it like to kind of lose an election basically well it, it, it's kind of it's like experiencing a grief, I think. Mm. Um, you go through stages. So there's the um, initial kind of um, absolute devastation the morning after or the kind of night where you, it becomes apparent that you've lost an election. And my, um, my, my most kind of vivid memory of this is actually the EU referendum where we had um, a watch party where we invo invited broadcasters in to watch us you know, supporters of um, of Britain's membership of the EU um, kind of see the results come in. And it got to about um, 11.30 and we were starting to get calls and, um, and, and it wasn't looking as good as our internal polling had suggested. And then by about half midnight, we knew that we were going to lose. Um, but we still had the broadcasters there for another <laughs> no. six and a half hours. So I was kind of running around the room saying to people, no tears, come on, keep up, keep up. You know, we might still win it. Um, and then um, we did our last live broadcast, I think, with Kay Burley at 6.30 the following morning. Most people had left by then. It was a pretty sorry sight of kind of um, helium balloons that had deflated um, and... Uh, uh, and kind of decorations uh, torn down and everyone went um, to there. There's there's one pub that opens at uh, about 630 in the morning in Smithfield for the people um, delivering meat to the market. And Oof. everyone descended there. A few people who were working for um, the Conservative government needed to go back to number 10 to plan the Cameron resignation. But they then joined us at about eight. Um, and and we all <laughs> drank for about 12 hours so that was the, the kind of initial grief and then as you say there is a period of reflection and um 
you start getting external feedback so quite quickly newspapers kind of write it off as the worst campaign that ever existed and you know um, uh, there's lots of kind of external criticism and then longer term I think you can start to reflect on where you missed things and um, where the research you were getting and the response from the public you were getting didn't quite connect with your overall political strategy um, and you try and learn from that. Yeah. Chris, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think, have you only experienced glorious victory in your time? I'm trying to, any defeats that you want to reflect upon? Uh, well, no, I had a slightly bizarre experience of um, working in the Whip's office. So in, in the Whip's office, um, in, in the run-up to the 2010 election, you're kind of hoping that nothing much happens because if stuff happens, then uh, you're sort of the, the firefighters of, of Parliament and the HR function. So there were, and I'm not going to go into the details, one or two instances uh, where we were sort of had phone calls from various constituency parties with MPs who kind of slightly messed things up or had, um, you know, done the proverbial shouting through the letterbox of a constituent <laughs> while we were trying to um, sort of bury that in the uh, in the, the footers of the papers. Um, but yeah, in 2010, we um, we obviously had the election result and nobody knew quite it won. So for a few days, we were sort of milling around in Parliament, nobody knowing what had happened. Um, we had a lot of very eager, we had 150 odd new MPs coming in. I had one MP who shall remain nameless on the morning after the election at 6.30 when I was still in Parliament in the, the opposition whips office. And I call, had a call from a doorkeeper. It's like, one of your new MPs has turned up and he wants to know what to do. I was like, I, I've just been up through the middle of the night. This guy's too eager. Um, so, yeah, there was, there was that. And then the sort of the slow coalition negotiations over a few days and, and eventually working out that we were going to get in uh, to Downing Street. And the thing I think the moment I knew was when um, Patrick was in uh, Downing Street. He'd sort of had the discussion with, with David. We, they got in and then it was a kind of, right, we got this reshuffle plan, but we'd kind of only done a reshuffle plan of like where the ministers were going to go if we won. Mm. So then we had to give up 20, 25 uh, positions to the Liberal Democrats. So it was like frantically going around, you know, who goes where, what does this? And I remember being asked to carry this file up um, uh, to Downing Street with all of the plans laid in. And I hadn't thought about it, but I went through the, the doors, you know, the, the, the gates at, at Downing Street, and literally there was about 300 photographers and, and video cameras and, and broadcasters all down one side. And as one, they kind of swiveled over to me thinking, who is this? Is he a new minister or something? <laughs> I'm just like, nothing to do with me. He just moved on. But, uh, yeah, that was, that was my abiding memory of, of several sleep-deprived nights and sort of anticipation of whether we were going to do it or not. Gosh. I remember the formation of the coalition. I, I vividly remember as a, as a political nerd, obviously watching in from the outside and listening into the radio and people scampering all around, White, reporters all over Whitehall. This person's just come out of this meeting. We've spotted that person going into that building. We're being briefed X, Y and Z. It was, it was chaos. There was a couple of days of just absolute, nobody knows what's going on. Yeah, it really was. It was... Uh, and it's really interesting to kind of go back and, and sort of talk to people who were involved at the time from different perspectives. So, um, you know, when I was working in the coalition for, for five years, like we, we spent 
a lot of time very closely working with the Liberal Democrats and getting their perspective on things and hearing what the offers that have been made by Gordon Brown to, to them to, to go in. And, and it was almost like they were can, you know, candy in a sweet shop, sort of, or kids in a sweet shop, sort of <laughs> trying to work out, you know, which promise they could trade off between Labour and the Conservatives and how, how much rope we were going to give them. And mm. uh, yeah, it was a, a fascinating time to, to be involved in politics. Wow, that is really cool. Uh, it's great to have you both here, Chris and Amy, uh, with us on the podcast today. Of course, you can get in touch anytime email your thoughts your questions your hot takes anything at all the email address is hello at whitehallsources.com uh, right well let's start shall we with what, what has been dominating the week really um last night on wednesday night in the commons the illegal immigration bill cleared its final stages at uh, 289 votes to 230 home secretary suella braverman said it was another step on our way to delivering on the british people's desire to stop the boats uh, and now it goes to the Lords. I mean, it had been expected to be quite a big battle, this, Chris. Is it fair to say that the margins were a bit more comfortable than perhaps the government had expected? Yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, if you look at it, um, you know, no Conservative MP rebelled. I was just frantically checking that to make sure that uh, that none had actually rebelled on a very helpful Commons votes out. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think they've done a good job in party management there i mean it's uh, you've got a good turnout there of, of sort of nearly 289 290 tory mps voting in favor of the government they've managed to to actually focus on something which at least for the conservative party there seems to be uh, a sense of uh, mission around what they want to deliver it's a, a clear um, ask of what rishi sunak has set out as one of his five priorities uh, for government um, and so from that perspective you know there isn't really a, a sort of cohort or a wing of the party within parliament that thinks kind of differently on that you know, they, they recognise that actually this is pretty central. Uh, you know, the polling in some of the red wall seats, for example, is very much in favour and sees this as a big priority. Um, so, you know, it's not something that I think that would have kept the whips up a huge amount over the last few weeks, but there would have been a lot of work behind the scenes just to make sure everybody actually uh, is in line on this and, and voting the right way. Mm. Amy, come in on this, because your, your experience is home affairs, uh, shadow home affairs, and I just wonder when we sort of consider what is where we're at now with this illegal immigration bill, if this feels in some ways like the government getting a grip on a problem that has been a problem forever, <laughs> for as long as anyone can remember. Yeah, and I think that's the big question. Um, and, uh, you know, what Chris said is, is, is right. It's clear that this... Um, it polls as a, a, an issue that's really important in seats that Labour need to win back um, across the country. Um, and uh, that some of what um, the messaging around the illegal immigration bill is is, is going to be popular and, um, and, and is cutting through. Um, I think that the big question um, is, is less really about the kind of legislative process and, and whether it actually makes a difference and how that actually plays out in the way uh, the political debate continues on. Um, so for the Labour Party, I mean, obviously what the Tories want is to have big billboards and, you know, digital campaigns. Labour voted against the illegal immigration bill. They have got that. That is, you know, that is, that is their, um, their, their golden ticket. Labour have to now uh, make the case and, and make it loudly and, and aggressively that this won't make a difference anyway. And certainly um, both by the kind of um, terms of the debate and the, the ambition that Rishi Sunak set out, it, it won't end the small boat 
crossings by the end of the year. There's a question whether it will have much impact at all. I mean, there is some evidence that actually some of the debate around, um, uh, you know, swift returns, the Rwanda policy is is acting as a little bit of a deterrent already. But whether it will have a sizable difference to the number of people crossing, I, I think is questionable. And, and, and that's really where, where Labour need to um, both hammer home um, the fact that this is really a bit of a, a smoke screen um, against um, uh, a problem that has much more complex um, answers and also putting forward their own plan. Uh, they have a kind of five point plan that they've been pushing. I'm not sure that that's um, a, a kind of landed um, uh, really and cut through, mm. but it um, but it certainly um, needs to be a, a, a focal point for the next stage of um, of, of, of political debate in, in this area. Um, so I, I think the, the legislation was always going to be a challenge for the Labour Party um, and and now they need to kind of push on from there and make their case around their plan and the fact that this isn't actually going to make a, make a big difference. Yeah, I think that's Amy's right uh, on this. It's really interesting to sort of see where uh, and what happens over the next sort of year or so because we're still what are we just uh, just under 18 months away from the next election so really both parties have kind of got what they want out of this the Tories as as Amy said have, have been able to sort of paint Labour into a corner and, and will be able to campaign quite vigorously on it over the next uh, few months but you know Labour have got the benefit of time on this uh, and actually whether it stops the the small boats uh, in in the numbers that we're seeing across uh, each month and, and whether they start to decline, I think is another thing entirely. And, and really the proof of the pudding will be in the eating. We'll, we'll have to see where we are in about six months time to see whether it's actually had an impact or not. And if it hasn't, then there's still enough time there for Labour to make a, a significant set of inroads uh, on this issue ahead of the, the next election. One, one of the big things I'd be interested in your view on, Chris, is, is that actually from what I hear from um, my friends and colleagues um, campaigning up and down the country is that the, the uh, messages coming up on the doorstep is switching slightly from the small boat crossings to um, the hotels and asylum seekers being housed in hotels is the mm -hmm. kind of thing that is making people angry and worried and anxious. And this could potentially uh, be problematic because obviously the government do have plans to move um, people out of hotels. And I think that will be a big kind of focus of the debate. But it has pitted them against Tory MPs uh, who, you know, have uh, big naval bases or ships or, what you know, whatever uh, slightly uh, mad solution is being um, touted any day in their constituency. And it's interesting to, to see how that might play out with with very vigorous local campaigns in in Tory areas against a kind of a, a very evangelical home secretary at the moment who's who's going to need to be seen to deliver on this yeah i was just trying to remember i was looking at these stats the other week uh, the migration uh, sort of uh, center at the university of oxford has been looking at uh, just how many um, you know it's essentially what the backlog is and i think it's something like 130,000 uh, from memory uh, who are awaiting uh, an asylum decision. It's something like 50% take more than a year or 18 months to, to have a decision. And basically when, you know, despite hiring all of these um, additional case workers to process the asylum claims, actually the, the, the rate of uh, and time taken it takes to process a claim is, has actually gone down or takes longer than it did sort of two, three years ago. Um, so there's clearly a problem 
in, in sort of processing the claims, whether that's because they're more complicated, I don't know. But the problem is that as that, the, the claim time increases, you, you've got more and more people who have to be housed somewhere. And that's a basic problem that the, the government's got at the moment is they're running out of places to put people. Putting people in a hotel is not a sustainable solution in the long run. But then when you're looking for, for sites to put uh, um, people in, I mean, there's, I think it was RAF Scampton, there was a former prison in Bexhill that people were, uh, that the government was floating as a potential suggestion. But you need thousands of, of places for, for people to stay. And they also, you know, for humanitarian reasons and, and for, you know, just, decency need to be of a reasonable and good standard and in, in the way that we treat people so then you are putting uh, people up uh, uh, against local uh, the government against local people in in local areas and it's really really hard to find a solution mm. um, they have to you have to house people somewhere you know while you understand where uh, the whether these uh, asylum claims are legitimate or not um, but then you're in a case where frankly a lot of people just don't want thousands of um, uh, asylum seekers in a local area where the uh, facilities that uh, and, and sort of healthcare facilities and, and, and other issues are just aren't set up for, for dealing with them. So it's a really hard thing. I, I sort of have a bit of a sympathy with the government on this. But then on the other hand, I sort of look at it and think, well, you know, the, the time taken to process some of these claims has been increasing for such a long time, actually, uh, the government really does need to get a grip on that. Mm. I think it has actually increased year on year since 2010. Really, I, I'm, yeah. I, I was that is really fascinating, and I'm quite. <laughs> you said sheepishly, I'm quite. I'm quite struck by the the idea that the messaging on the doorstep is about the hotels, because immediately in your in your own mind you can potentially see how how Labour could carve that out actually as some as as something tangible to to pinpoint a solution on and say look we'll. Uh, get these people out of hotels and into wherever, that could become a real point of divergence, Amy. Yeah, and I mean, the, the real answer, as, as, as Chris um, alluded to, is is not to just move them from one place to another, but is to fast-track the, mm. the, um, the asylum claims, which is part of the Labour 5 plan. I think the detail on that, um, and I know you want to kind of come on to um, policy vision, but where you have, where you... Um, give and offer detail and where you don't um, is quite an important strategic decision in this last kind of 18 months. And I suspect that's one of the areas where um, actually some detail would be welcome mm. um, and the public uh, will respond well to a party that says, look, we have a plan and we have, you know, a ream of policy to sit behind it to show that it's deliverable and we have experts from all across uh, all across the political spectrum to say that this will make a difference um, and so yeah I think uh, it's I, I think this is a challenging issue for the Labour Party but it's not an issue as Chris said um, where there aren't opportunities mm. as well to point to um, kind of long-term um, government failure and and one of the interesting things about Suella Braverman and, and and actually it's it's a kind of recurring theme it feels like at the moment from the from the Conservative Party is this this attempt to show that this is almost a new government with a new plan. I mean Suella Braverman this week has said that uh, the asylum and immigration system is has failed. I mean that is an extraordinary thing when you think about it for a Home Secretary to say at the end of um, you know a long period of Conservative. Um, 
government and uh, she now is wants to be seen as the person who comes in and fixes it um, and and so you know one of as well as offering a kind of proper solution um, one of the challenges that Labour have in this area is to show that this is a problem that that is created by a, a long period of conservative government um, and 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 that they have to kind of shoulder some of the blame of the chaos and the kind of um, expensive hotel system and um, and and um, in the way that you know labor would describe it the failure to grip this crisis mm -hmm. um, and and so I, I think there there's a there's quite a lot going on in this issue um, for both parties to kind of get a handle on and also potentially make hay with in the next um, few months. Really, really interesting. Just as a sort of concluding thought, I was looking up sort of just some polling on this, just to sort of put it all into context. And in February, uh, Ipsos came back with uh, trust on this issue that more people trust uh, the Labour Party when it comes to immigration and asylum seekers. I mean, they do point out neither party scores, scores particularly highly, uh, but they do people do tend to trust Labour more. A third trust Labour a great deal or fair amount to have the right policies towards asylum seekers. It's 35% to 28% who would say the same for the Conservative Party. 34% trust Labour to have the right immigration policies, 28% on Conservative. Uh, do, I wonder how those figures may adjust, as you say, in the next 18 months with more detail and uh, more detail from Labour and up against that is the actual uh, potential enactment of government policies as well when that first flight to Rwanda finally takes off, for example. Um, really interesting. Uh, add your thoughts then. Email hello at whitehallsources.com. We'll read those out on next week's episode. Stay with us. Lots more to come from Chris and from Amy. This is Whitehall Sources. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Right now, let's go on to discuss just a bit of aftermath of Dominic Rabb. This was very dominant last weekend uh, when Dominic Rabb resigned um, as Deputy Prime, uh, Deputy Prime Minister and Justice Secretary, of course. Two allegations of bullying were sort of upheld in this report from Adam Tolley KC uh, and Dominic Rabb, of course. 
being a man of his word, after all, uh, decided that it was time to resign. In terms of aftermath, The Guardian's um, floating around some stories around Steve Barclay, concerns about Steve Barclay, the health secretary's conduct towards staff. Officials have apparently informally complained to the department's permanent secretary. Um, There's similar reporting coming from ITV. Some claims do include the word bullying. And so it does sort of beg the question, I suppose in the aftermath of RAB, if there is a kind of real rift appearing between uh, politicians, ministers, cabinet secretaries and the civil service. Chris, what's your perception of that? Is there a frayed or fraying relationship there? I think it's under strain uh, for a number of different reasons. Um, the uh, You can't get anything done uh, as a political uh, party in government without working with the civil service. So I think that's the first place to start with all of this. You have to have a good working relationship. Um, and civil servants are there to implement the political direction of the government of the day. So they're there to do their best possible job. Um, but I think the, you know, there's been a number of instances, I mean, certain individuals, for example, Sue Gray, uh, going and be, you know, trying to become the uh, chief of staff to the Labour leader, uh, has not helped on the issue of political uh, impartiality, which is what the civil service is supposed to do. And I think, you know, speaking to a lot of sort of civil servants who I used to work with, there's a lot of dismay, actually, that, that she decided to take that route because it, it just allows an easy presentation uh, for, let's say, the right of Conservative Party or for those who like to characterise the civil service as a blob who are deliberately obstructive, um, to um, say that it's there for, for reform. And we've had cycles of, of reform or, or claims of reform to try and improve it. I mean, we all know how much Dominic Cummings rated the civil service. Um, and, uh, you know, go back in my day, uh, uh, Francis Moore did a whole uh, cycle of reforms on, on civil service uh, improvement. Um, but the, the ROB, just turning specifically to the ROB um, allegations, you know, reading the Tolly report in detail, you know, I'm one of those sad people who actually went through it line by line and, <laughs> you and, and me read both. it in, in some detail. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I know. Well, look, I mean, there's, there's probably two things to say. One is there's, there's no smoking gun in the report where you, you could actually point to it and say, he did this, uh, you know, and that particular instance was completely uh, anathema. It shouldn't have been allowed. But the characterization of the behavior and the way that he treated uh, individuals is, is pretty abundantly clear. And we all have to ask ourselves if we're working uh, with colleagues, with civil servants, you know, when you're in government, is that the best way to get what you want um, and the best results uh, that you want out of working with the civil service? And I would say it's not. And I think, you know, that whether this is uh, a one-off or whether there's a series of individuals who clearly don't work particularly well with um, uh, the civil service or whether it's a characterization of a deeper malaise, I think it's harder to say. Did you, when you were there, Chris, did you, how did you find working with civil servants? What, what was that like? As you say, you can't get things done without them. I mean, I, I, and I think any reasonable person can understand that at times it would be tense because these are people who have been there potentially for a long time. They know the processes in and out and they're up against a political staff who just want to achieve things in as quick a time as possible. Yeah, I mean, look, I had, 
a really good working relationship with the, the civil service. Um, for the five years that I was a special advisor, I was privileged to work with some incredible people who uh, had spent decades uh, working there. I mean, the private secretary, a principal private secretary to the chief whip, uh, was a man uh, called Roy Stone. He was only the fourth office holder in 100 years of that particular post working mm-hmm. for the chief whip. So that institutional knowledge uh, was incredible. And, and to be able to tap into that was great. There was also, I remember walking in on sort of the first or the second week um, on, a, on a Friday um, and sitting in my office in Parliament working through stuff. And one of the civil servants came and walked into my room and, you know, literally he sort of went to drop something on my desk and then he suddenly realised I was there. It's like, it's absolute shock. He's like, why are you here? And I said, what do you mean? It's a working day. He said, well, you, you know, you're, no, no offence, I'm sure Amy wouldn't have done this, but your, your predecessors were always in the pub on a Friday and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, they never even say hello. We just get an effort off. Um, but uh, so there's always, there's always instances of, um, you know, individuals mm. who clearly don't work well. But I always found that, you know, the best way as a special advisor was to work with them. Mm. Because, you know, the, the civil service rules are clear. We're political appointees at the time. We cannot instruct civil servants. We can only request things. We only have to work through our minister. Um, and the best way to do that is to try and achieve a sort of shared goal of where you're trying to go. And that's absolutely critical to get the best out of uh, the relationship that you can. Mm. Can, can I ask a question, Chris? Um, when you were working for the party in opposition, did you do any kind of preparation for government? Because it strikes me that it's completely bonkers. There'd be no other uh, forum in which someone goes from managing maybe a team of five to suddenly sitting on top of this vast department. And, that, you know, I understand that um, the Labour shadow cabinet are currently going through courses run by the Institute for Government and starting to try and understand the levers of power that they might have some control over after the next election. But was there a, an equivalent or something that you went through? Yeah, we, we did something similar. So we had training sessions with the Institute for Government um, in the run up to the 2010 election. Um, obviously, um, at a certain point, then the civil service will, uh, before an election, will recommend to the existing government in power that the, the opposition party has access so they can start to analyse their plans and sort of work through and, and work out what's achievable and not so that at least you have a plan that you can begin to implement. And certainly when we were... Uh, in the you know, WIPS office, we were trying to, to sort of work with the civil service to sort of say, well, look, here's what the first Queen's speech would look like. Uh, these are the bills that we want to prioritise. How, you know, then the departments themselves would have to sort of uh, work out uh, with the parliamentary draftsman what that might actually look like. So the access is really, really important. And it's, it's important for whichever party is in opposition to get that. But I do think that, you know, the 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 training that's on offer should be much greater. Um, uh, you know, reshuffles aside, when ministers change, it's really challenging because you can go away and train up a, an individual cabinet minister and then suddenly they're out on the back benches again and that's, that's a lot of wasted time. But it does need to be better. It needs to be more institutionalised. Mm. But sadly, it's one of those things that nobody seems to pay attention to until the, the sort of a few months beforehand when it's almost too late. Yeah, it's not sexy, is it? It's not something that's sort of glamorous to, to talk about, I suppose. Amy, do you what, what do you make of some of the stuff that Chris was saying there, primarily around, I guess, Sue Gray and, and the allegations that fly at the civil service and, and have done for a long time and have certainly um, flown around again since Dominic Grab uh, in the last week or so? 
is is there anything in this? In, in is Sue Gray giving the civil service a bad name to some extent? I mean, I can I can really see how, uh, why Keir Starmer, you know, was was wanted to appoint Sue Gray, and and in some ways, you know, maybe he's doing some of what. Chris just talked about mm. kind of trying to learn about how to um, be in government and certainly um, bringing that understanding of how you actually move this massive kind of uh, juggernaut of, of government departments and, and, and then a, a wider whole government infrastructure. I mean, um, there, there are kind of strict codes, aren't there, about what the civil service, um, uh, civil servants can and can't do. And there's a kind of cooling off period. And there seems to be some debate as to how long that that, that would be. So I don't think um, she's she's bringing the, the civil service into disrepute in, in, in any way. Um, uh, I mean, the, the, it seems like a bit of a a poor attack by by the Tories to try and undermine some of her previous um, work by by claiming she's some kind of sleeper agent within the civil servant. I mean, what a what a long time to be a sleeper agent and uh, a, a, a lifetime plan uh, to try and bring down the government. Um, you know, 15 years after she joined or whatever. Um, so, I, I mean, I think it's a little bit of a, a Westminster bubble um, yeah. issue. That's really interesting. And I, I do, yeah, that's a really good point. How much cut through does a battle between an angry Dominic Rab um, and the civil service? How much How much does that resonate with people who can't pay their heating bill right now, I suppose? That's always the frame of reference, isn't it? With all of that in mind then, let's do a few minutes with each of you. Um, in terms of the direction of, of, of policy for, for a government, for opposition, especially, I'm just so intrigued by this in the context of an electoral cycle, um, perhaps naively, but as a journalist, I'm all, whenever I interview somebody particularly from Labour, I'm always, I want more information. I want more information. And they, at this point, they are really pivoting to, uh, it will be in our manifesto, which of course we publish in plenty of time for the general election, da-da-da-da-da. And I get that, of course I do. But I want the information now. And I often feel like listeners and newspaper readers and, and people in general want information now as well. And so Amy, I want to sort of consider with you how an opposition, how it should pace itself really, because... To me, it feels like the, the, the window between elections should almost be a five-year campaign. And actually, you shouldn't be scared of the government stealing your ideas or whatever, because you have to be presenting ideas. But I, I, I do get there has to be some pacing to the messaging. Um, is Keir Starmer, is he doing that? Is he doing it well? And I suppose the other thing that I'll feed in just as uh, now in, on our other podcast, which is Holyrood Sources, looking at Scottish politics, the Scottish Labour leader Anna Sarwar told us this week um, on that podcast, he said he really likes Keir Starmer's pledges, but what he thinks now, and it's, I don't think it's fair to call it a criticism, I think it's a kind of guiding thought more than anything else. Sarwar said... He really needs to make those pledges feel real to people. What is the impact of those pledges? And so with all of that in mind, where are we at? Should we expect more information soon or should we be a bit more patient? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting, um, interesting debate. And I think probably um, in the period that I was working for the Labour Party between 2010 and 2015, we would have heard your desire for more information Callum and said right let's provide it come on there yeah. are people out there who want it um, and um, and actually what is being quite impressive about Keir Starmer's team um, is that they haven't listened always to that kind of Twitter bubble the lobby um, the the commentary and they have a kind of strategic and very very paced plan um, that seems to be delivering so you know that the, the plan to um, have a mandate to you know 
cleanse the the Labour Party of the of, of the, um, the the challenges around anti-Semitism, and um, then um, you know take on Boris Johnson, and then lay out a vision. And certainly, um, what is coming through in in, in public polling and, and, and focus groups, um, as well as I'm sure in their internal, is that people really want to hear a bit more about who Keir Starmer is, what drives him, um, and I think that's really um, behind the vision and and the and the broader kind of um, direction of travel and 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 his principles um, for leadership and, and and for leading the country. Mm. Um, I think at the, the the big moment for um, the detail that you set out and where they choose to um, choose to uh, add detail will be. Um, Firstly, we'll start to get an indication over the summer. They'll um, choose a few issues, I think, to run summer campaigns on. Um, and, and they'll be both um, uh, aggressive, um, kind of proactive, positive campaigns and also um, like on some of the issues around small boats and defensive um, mm. campaigns. But really conference, I think, will be where a lot of this stuff crystallises. Um, and... Um, in opposition, even more in gov than in government, the political principle of repetition until you're blue in the face <laughs> really matters. And so we will need to hear the detail in enough time um, for that repetition to really sink in and for people to start repeating it back to you on the doorstep. And um, I think some of the challenges that we had in that period in the lead up to 2015 is that we really didn't decide on the kind of three or four areas of detail that we really wanted to set out and have imprinted in people's minds. And there really isn't more, much more than that. It's not gonna be, um, you know, the manifesto will be detailed um, and, and, and you know, costed to the penny, but um, the, the kind of messaging really needs to coalesce around a few key messages mm. um, and the detail will need to sit beyond those, so be, uh, behind those, sorry, so that um, they, they land. Um, but I think conference will be a big moment for that. And then we're really in the in the rundown to a long campaign and then short campaign. Mm. So, um, yeah, I think there is a, a sensibly paced approach that Keir Starmer's team have been pushing for the whole for the whole period. That's a good point about about conference. Chris, go on, you're laughing. Well, no, I, I sort of I, I, in part of me thinks that um, the Labour Party haven't needed to announce a plan at the moment because basically the Conservative Party has been loading a shotgun and shooting itself in the <laughs> foot repeatedly. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's almost like I, certainly from this side of the fence, it feels like uh, Labour and Keir Starmer are just kind of like, well, we don't need to say anything. Hmm. We're 20 points ahead in the polls. But let's not say anything. Yeah. Um, and actually, you know, I don't. You know, it's a perfectly good strategy. I don't really um, uh, sort of blame the wrong word, but I don't really blame uh, Keir Starmer for, for sort of going down that approach. There will come a point when Labour needs to set out that in more detail. I thought it was really interesting that, you know, uh, the net approval ratings for uh, Keir Starmer, particularly against Rishi Sunak, uh, has begun to sort of start to dip. So it fell 10 points uh, uh, in, uh, in the last month or so. Uh, and you're just beginning to see the net approval rating compared to Starmer begin to shift uh, in, fa in Sunak's favour. And I think uh, the challenge for Labour is when do they start to, to provide that clarity on what their plan for government actually is, because voters will start to become hungry for that. 
Uh, and you can only hold back so long, particularly because the government will say, well, look, with the whole power of the government machine, we're announcing this policy and that policy and government cons. And uh, you've got so much more ability to do stuff when you're in government compared to uh, when you're in, in opposition. So timing that, picking the right policies for Labour will be absolutely crucial. Mm. Um, I'm not for a second saying that, you know, Labour are not in the driving seat and, and sort of, um, several fences ahead of the, the Conservative horse at this stage of the Grand National, so to speak. Um, but, um, uh, you know, you could sort of see there's a new vim and vigour to the Conservative Party uh, and um, uh, they're certainly beginning to pick up a bit and that could just make it a little bit tighter mm. if only it wasn't for the SNP collapse in Scotland. Well, yes, indeed. And there's lots more on that on the Hollywood Sources podcast as well. Chris, it's interesting to get your, your take on sort of agenda, policy agenda setting, because this was a large part of what you were you were up to um, in terms of King's speech, the priorities for bills, how, the, how you kind of shape this. And I suppose there's a really interesting part of that, which is the, the next King's speech, which is normally around May time, is that correct? Yeah, it's, right it's going to be autumn this year. But it so will be in autumn, yeah. Okay. Yeah, they decided to run an 18-month session, which is an interesting yeah. uh, decision. And it's not unprecedented. I mean, in 2010, we did almost two years, I think, for the mm. first session, basically, because we couldn't get our, our act together and, <laughs> and decide which bills we wanted to do in conjunction with the coalition. So mm. there was so much negotiation between both sides as what bills would happen when that things started off pretty slowly. But look, policy, um, when you're in government, takes a heck of a long time to do. I mean, I always say... Uh, to people when they ask, well, how long does it take to, to, to get a bill through? And I said, well, it's not the, the sort of the bit that you see at the end, the sort of, what are you saying, maybe three or four months in, in both houses, so the six months or so in, in Parliament. It's actually about 18 months from policy idea through to, to royal assent. Um, and then you've got the, all the commencement of the legislation and sort of briefing people. There might be more consultations that have to happen once the law is actually passed. So um, I always remember in about May... Uh, for the May Queen speech in 2014, when I was working for Andrew Nancy. So we were wrapping up the eight or so bills from the 2012 to 2013 session. We were we were literally about to launch the the 25-ish bills in the 2013 to 14 session. And in you know the month before, we'd written out to all of the uh, cabinet ministers asking for bids for the 14 to 15 session. So we were basically juggling. 50 bills or 50 bids uh, at any one point, trying to sort of have both a coherent plan and vision of what the, the government wanted to do, but also in terms of what, uh, you know, delivery priorities suddenly come up. You know, there might be a, um, you know, a new, you've seen all these, uh, the zombie knives that are uh, looking to be banned at the moment that suddenly crop up or, you know, there might be some uh, sort of emergency issue that, and le that legislation is needed to be done. So, it is, it's literally like if you ever go to the circus and watch the clown spinning plates, it is like that all the time because you're having to manage every individual bill as they go through Parliament, mm. the parliamentary handling strategy, working with MPs, working with the department, working with both houses, so in the Commons and the Lords, uh, and with the Cabinet Ministers. And then you're replicating that for every single bill um, and planning for the year ahead because if you don't, when it comes around to May, you've got nothing to announce. Oh, my word. I don't know if government's all it's cracked up to be, Amy. Goodness, I think you did fine in opposition. It does sound quite exhausting. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, opposition has its own challenges because, you know, everything that the government put forward, you have to oppose with a team of... I mean, when I worked um, uh, for a vet, we had um, me and um, 
two other advisors and so uh, trying to get your head around anything the government says come up with a, a, a line a strategy um, for opposing or putting forward your own plan um, kind of rests on, 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 on a small number of, of shoulders um, and um, the, the, the actual secret weapon I think of um, opposition parties um, is the House of Commons Library um, which acts as a kind of um, mini version of civil service policy um, or research teams um, who can provide you with amazing resources in terms of data analysis and um, and we drew on that a lot. Um, but yeah, I mean, that sounds uh, incredibly exhausting, Chris. I can see why you wanted to have a bit more work-life balance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it's good, though. It means we can borrow your insight for the podcast. Um, guys, thank you very much. It's been so interesting to speak to you around current issues and your own insights on how these things work. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, Chris White and Amy Richards on uh, Whitehall Sources. We will be back next week, of course. We're here every single Thursday in your podcast feed. You can email between now and then if you'd like your thoughts read out or your questions asked. The email address is hello at whitehallsources.com. We always love to hear from you. Thank you very much for listening. Follow and subscribe, and we will speak to you next week. Hold up. 